Take your Bibles, turn to Acts 22. We are in our last message of our series, Ground Zero, where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the fallout of a false assumption that he had brought a Gentile into a restricted zone of the Jewish temple. Paul had been apprehended by the Romans basically to save his life because the the Jews had come rushing in, were getting ready to beat him and to kill him. The Jews did not appreciate the fact that uh, Paul had brought a Gentile in. They falsely accused him of, of having this Gentile at a part of the temple that he shouldn't have been. Paul's giving a speech. The Jews were begrudgingly listening until he brought up the topic of Gentiles, and at that word, uh, they blew their top. And we pick up our story here in Acts 22:22. Let's uh, all stand as we take a look at our passage this morning. Up to this word, the Gentiles, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. We've noted before that the Jews had been listening to Paul's testimony until he had mentioned Gentiles. It was at that point that the Jews said, this man is not fit to live. The rejection of the gospel was certainly emphatic. Now, there are some who appear reasonable, in their rejection of the gospel. There are others who hate the mention of Christ. And while our culture appears more tame than this and does not yet practice stoning, crucifixion, or other biblical-like judgments, the rejection of the gospel is still, whether it's an American type or like this in Jerusalem, it's still rejection of the gospel. In our day, political correctness seeks to silence anyone who aligns with the gospel or who raises a moral standard in the public square. I say this not because I have a martyr complex, I don't think I do, but because I think it's, it's fact. Christians are typically stereotyped in negative ways. You might get a condescending smile of of pity 
you know, those poor people, who they just don't know better, you know. Uh, or many condemn the gall of someone declaring the exclusivity of a God, a Savior, a Bible. And whether it's stoning or a politically correct denunciation, the rejection of the gospel and the corresponding consequences are just as real for both kinds. John MacArthur tells a story of how his former high school football coach, and if you're unfamiliar, John MacArthur was actually drafted into the NFL, but decided not to go in order to to preach the gospel. But his former high school football coach became an assistant at USC, and he had invited MacArthur to come and speak to the players. And this is what MacArthur said took place. He said, after a brief few comments about himself, about MacArthur, the coach said, I want you to know, and then he kind of hung his head when he, when he said this, that everyone, everything that John says is true. It's all true. I know it's true. I've just never accepted it personally. Whether someone's unwillingness to accept the gospel is militant or a kinder approach, the net result for both is still eternal separation from God. We cannot fool ourselves into thinking that being nice is going to count when you reject the gospel. The rejection of the Jews that they had towards the Apostle Paul and the gospel were punctuated in verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, and flinging dust into the air. Let's just stop right there. Commentators vary as to the historical significance of this taking off of the cloaks. Some said it was a sign of mourning, a kind of mourning that you might have for blasphemy that they thought that Paul had had committed. Others said it was a first step in wanting to stone Paul. This is interesting. Remember when Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, and we read in verse 58, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. See, they laid their garments down so that it would not inhibit them. You know, those cloaks or togas. I mean, they wanted to throw fastballs. This was not a change-up. They were wanting to throw fastballs at Paul, or at Stephen in this case, and kill him, and do the same with, with Paul here in Acts 22. The idea of the Jews was to cast this condemnation upon Paul and to kill him. Now, the only problem with wanting to stone him is that they had no stones here in this case. And so what they do is that, you know, you can just kind of picture the, the unreasonableness of all this and the rage that's going through them and just you know, looking around, just picking up whatever they can find in the dirt and just throwing it at them. There are no stones, it's just dirt. It's a rage. Now, whether the the cloaks are for mourning or for throwing stones when they took them off, we can agree for the reason of this rejection. When Paul mentioned the Gentiles, that's when their ire perked. The Jews objected that Gentiles could enjoy all the benefits of being in fellowship with God 
without being circumcised, without practicing the law like the rest of them did. I mean, hey, God called us as his special people that we could, you know, usher in the law, that everybody could practice the law. And now you're telling, the, telling us that Gentiles can just short circuit all that and just by faith in Jesus have fellowship with God? We don't think so. It felt like they were losing their special standing before God. And as a result, they cast off all logic, sense, and reason, and they went nuclear. And that's why we call this series Ground Zero. I mean, if the Jews have a Chernobyl moment throughout their long and storied history, this episode and these couple chapters is the trigger that led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I went into details of that a couple weeks ago. Rage typifies the response to Jesus in our story here today. Now we can learn about rage. It's a topic you might not enjoy hearing, (laughs) Uh, but it's very instructive when you consider some of the reasons that people went into a rage in the scriptures. For instance, Naaman was a general who arrived at Elisha's house. Now, he wanted to be treated like a general. He had expectations of how others should honor him. You know, he's kind of like an entertainer who gets to the green room and he wants, you know, the water to be at a certain temperature and, you know, certain snacks and all this, very specific instructions. That's kind of what he had in his head. Well, he gets to Elisha's door, and instead of Elisha greeting him, he has one of his servants. At this point, you know, Naaman is getting a little PO'd, and then he's given instructions to wash in the Jordan River, which was far dirtier than some other rivers around. That really ticked him off. And we read in 2 Kings 5.12, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So we learn from this that anger can often spring up from unmet expectations regarding how we think others should treat us. You know, it starts with being hurt, Then we get angry, it escalates to rage. Now all that could happen in five seconds or it might take longer as you just stew on it. But that's what took place with Naaman. Asa was a king of Judah that rejected the instruction that a spiritual advisor had given to him. The advisor held Asa responsible for not consulting the Lord in some other matters. We read in 2 Chronicles 16, then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. Here is rage when confronted with the truth about oneself. Instead of accepting it and saying, this is true, yes, 
I have issues here, responds in rage. And notice also, here it's accompanied by violence. In Acts 22, the Jews' irrationality was fueled by their belief system. Now, whether this comes from, a, in other cases, like an atheistic worldview or even some religious beliefs, they are both a set of values or beliefs that we have about God and other people that fuel the rage. By definition, rage is a state of being where the individual exhibits irrationality to the point of even being violent. And when the fuel for this kind of prejudice is a religious fervor, it's very easily ignitable. In fact, the psalmist said this, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Romans 1 tells us why. The reason is because people are naturally enemies against God. A hard pill maybe for some to swallow. Before we get into that, let's remind ourselves of how history will be wrapped up with people who are enraged with God. Revelation 11, 16 through 18 gives the other side of the equation. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. We must not be naive and think rage against God is ever justified or advisable when you're dealing with a holy Sovereign, almighty God. When God was dealing with Sennacherib, which by the way, we wanted to call our first son, but Jared won out. The king of Assyria, he said, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Again, this is God dealing with the king of Assyria. Because you've raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. So Sennacherib was clearly at fault for his approach toward God, but he's thinking, you know, all of this ill will that he has against God, it's justified. And then we read in Proverbs 19.3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. So in other words, when people do stupid stuff, we're all guilty of this, and we suffer for it, what Proverbs is saying, they tend to blame God and can even rage against him. Wow, it's irrational. 
But that's exactly what takes place today. And it's what was taking place with the Jews. There is a rage, a burning anger against the truth of God. And when we're in that state, so I, you know, I want to be careful here, not just talk about, you know, those people. It's us as well, because I think we can get ourselves in a rage. When we're in that state, we are ill-equipped to see our own sin, and we are not objective about our own spiritual state. The world tells us all people are good, and the problems individuals have you know, it's because of all the things that are going on in their families and their, and their cultures, and they blame everything but the person. The person is not responsible. So when God shines his light on the individual, there's a fierce rejection and rage against God. And this is man's predicament. And this is another reason why we as God's people have to be compelled to tell our story of our interaction with the gospel, with the people that we can share that with because it is crucial for their well-being and it is urgent for their eternal destiny. How can we do any less? You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You just tell your story of how the gospel has interacted with you. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, and we're going to stop there, The commander or tribune was trying to get to the bottom of this fracas, so he decided to flog Paul. In other words, they wanted to interrogate him by beating him. They wanted to get information out of Paul. Now, Paul had been beaten several times, but he'd never been flogged. He was beaten with rods on three occasions. Rods are, you know, long sticks tied together. He was beaten with a long whip five different times. But being flogged, this was the granddaddy of all beatings. The Roman version was inflicted with shorter whips embedded with pieces of metal or bone attached to a wooden handle. They would stretch the man's body out over a post so it was drawn tight and this would create maximum damage and separation of the tissue and skin when he was hit. Each time there was an extracting of flesh and tissue and muscle. Not a pretty scene. It would often kill a man, certainly would cripple him. And this is what Christ received. And this is why he couldn't carry the cross to Golgotha because of the flogging and the beating that he took. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, 
is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid. So he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So Paul asks a rhetorical question. He knew it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen. In fact, the Roman law said that any Roman citizen uh, that was chained, scourged, or killed without a proper trial, there would be consequences. Failure to obey this law resulted in severe punishment. In fact, one Roman historian, Suetonius, in the first century said, any Roman who violates or any man who violates the rights of a Roman citizen will be executed. Paul had been chained, and he was about to be flogged without any formal charges made against him. Lysias, the tribune, the commander, he knows he's on thin ice. He did not want to incur the wrath of Rome. But now, Lysias must have been thoroughly perplexed about Paul. I mean, at first, he thought he was an Egyptian revolutionary. Remember that from a couple sermons ago? Then he learned that he was a Jew, a citizen of Tarsus, a man of culture who spoke polished Greek. Now he learns Paul's also a Roman citizen, but the surprises are not over. Soon he learned that Paul was not some Johnny-come-lately to citizenship status like Lysias, but one who was born a citizen. Claudius, the Roman emperor, had a wife named Messalina who had court favorites that hung around her. They conspired together to kind of get some extra cash on the side by selling Roman citizenships for inflated prices. It appears that Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, bought one of them, taking the name of the emperor on as a result. Paul, on the other hand, had a father who was a Roman citizen and inherited his status. It was indeed a very opportune time for Paul to bring this up <laughs> as you are laid out. Oh, hey, uh, by the way, uh, I'm a Roman citizen. Now, he certainly took advantage of his rights as a Roman citizen. But I don't think it was just to save his bacon. It certainly included that. But it was so he could continue on with the mission of the gospel. Verse 30 starts another chapter for this narrative that Paul was now going to get a hearing before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. Lysias maybe thought that he could get to the bottom of this whole affair. But without an understanding 
of human sin, without an understanding of the gospel, Lysias' understanding would only be skin deep. What fascinates me about this story is what Paul does not do. Think about this. If you're in that situation, what would you be prone to do? I mean, you know, I'm going to call my lawyer. You're going to be screaming. You're going to be desperate for trying to get some help. We don't get the sense here that Paul was screaming or angry or threatening to sue the centurion or anyone else because of his capture. He seems to be waiting patiently to ask this question. Now, I do not think he was a masochist that really looked forward to beatings. However, he also doesn't seem to be overly concerned or fearful. Could it possibly be that Paul accepted the notion of persecution and punishment as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I know when I ask that question, it seems far removed from us and our experiences in this country. But that's not my intent. Because I think our answer to that question illuminates the expectations for ourselves in the Christian life. I don't know, maybe it's because we've grown up in one of the greatest countries ever to be on the earth. Or perhaps it's because of the the brand of evangelicalism that is closely aligned with triumphalism and capitalism that erroneously defines success for us as a Christian. But I think our view of the Christian life can sometimes be so different than what we read in the book of Acts. Paul certainly did not seem to have a sense of entitlement. You know, that he couldn't be hurt. He couldn't be offended. Don't you know that I am an apostle of the living God? How dare you speak to me this way? And yet, haven't we met even religious leaders that act like this, that talk like this, and that even Christians who take that attitude? Paul didn't have any of that. In fact, it was, it was quite the opposite. It just blows my mind. Listen to this. Colossians 1.24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. For, I, mean, <laughs> I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Well, what does that mean? That Christ Crucifixion is somehow lacking? No. This has nothing to do with the crucifixion or what he did on the cross. In fact, that word used for affliction in the Greek is never applied 
to the crucifixion. Okay? In this context, Christ's afflictions, listen, are the same as our afflictions when we are accosted or persecuted for the faith. Remember when Jesus spoke to Saul on the Damascus road? What was the question he asked Saul? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting me. It's one and the same. That's an affliction to Christ when his people are afflicted. Paul says here in Colossians, it's for the sake of the church that he suffers. We can say it this way. Christ suffered in death to save the church and Paul is suffering in life to help the churches. The context of Colossians defines for us what Paul means, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully work within me. Paul is fulfilling a stewardship from God in his suffering. I mean, the sovereign God knows exactly how many times and to what extent Paul will suffer for the gospel, and every time Paul does suffer, he looks at it as just filling up his quota, not for salvation, but in service to Christ. Add to that, he's a part of making known the mystery of the gospel, which includes including the Gentiles. Add to that, there would be no persecution unless the gospel was being proclaimed. So he knows he's making progress in getting the gospel out when he's persecuted. Elsewhere in Philippians, add another reason, Paul said suffering for Christ puts us in deep fellowship with Christ. I don't think Paul feels entitled at all. I think this is why he experienced joy in being slighted, in being unjustly accused, in suffering without expectation to get angry or even self-righteous toward his captors. I mean, man, this is why Paul was not feeling rage for the injustice done to him. I think this is deeply instructive for us today. I don't want us to think that this is, you know, it's certainly a supernatural act, but the same Holy Spirit is in us that was in Paul. I don't want us to think that it was unique for an apostle, but something not attainable for us today. Can we have the same calm and rest and peace 
in the midst of suffering that Paul had? I think so. Rage. It's really a foolish declaration of the supremacy of self when our goals and our expectations are not met. We've all done it, okay? If I had to take notes of my worst moments as a human being, the times that I was enraged, hopefully not many, but I'd be lying to you if, it ne- if I said it never happened, the rage would be on the first page of worst moments as a human. I've got more than that, but I'm just saying that would be on the first page. I'm just trying to say, I, I don't want us to separate this, that, you know, this is about all of those other people. We're talking about us. All of us experience anger with others, and even at some points, maybe even rage, when we feel our goals are being ignored or ourselves are being ignored. I challenge you in this. It's very difficult to distinguish self-righteousness from this kind of rage. They sure appear like it's one and the same. In Brant Hansen's book, Unoffendable, he says this. I want you to listen closely to this because you may not experience the rage so often, so you think you're off the hook, but we all experience being offended and being angry. So listen closely. If you call yourself a Christian and you want things to be fair, and you want God's rewards given out only to the deserving and the upstanding and the religious, well, honestly, Jesus has got to be a complete embarrassment to you. He goes on. Our anger is valuable to us. That's why we want to hold it, to savor it. It means something. It means We've been wronged, that we're in the right, and we're the victims in an unfair exchange. We want to even out the scales, and one way to do it, at least psychologically, is to stay offended. Of course my anger is righteous. It's righteous because clearly I'm right. And they're wrong. My ways seem pure to me, always. The thing that you think makes your anger righteous is the very thing you are called to forgive. The thing that you think makes your anger righteous is the very thing that you are called to forgive. Strapped. Knowing what's coming. That's what Paul had in his heart. That's why he 
couldn't scream out. I think he was so undeserving. If Paul was able to summon the peace of Christ before a mob flogs him, I think it's reasonable for us to think that we can camp out also on his presence and his promises so that we don't get into a rage in a marriage at work, doing a business transaction whenever we feel slighted. It's not only what's possible, it's what is expected because we are in Christ and Christ is in us and he is readily available in those moments. Let's pray.